It's like trying to watch a Superman movie with no Superman. It doesn't make sense. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Therefore, a right understanding of our Savior is imperative for the believer. This is another thing that we're trying to help you see this Advent season. What you believe about the end affects what you believe about the mission. And what you believe about the mission affects what you believe about discipleship. And what you believe about discipleship reveals what you believe about the Savior. And what you believe about the Savior determines what you believe about the Father who sent him. All of these things are interconnected. So in our passage this morning, we're going to be examining the message and the mission of our Savior. The message and the mission. Two M's, Aaron. I believe these two categories will help us get a right understanding of who our Savior is. A right understanding of who he is. A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continues by saying this, before the Christian church goes off course anywhere There must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, who is God like, or what is God like, and goes on from there. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what he actually is, and that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. I can't say it any better than that. We must know what our Savior is like. And we must constantly, church, be on guard from making him into our image. We know we're prone to do this. So let's get into the passage. At the beginning of this chapter, Luke is recounting Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. If you look up, you'll see that. This comes right after Jesus' baptism. Luke has already shown us how Jesus' miraculous birth was foretold by the angels, and he's given us that wonderful Christmas story that you better read to your family this Christmas in Luke 2. Now, Luke has fast-forwarded to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke zooms into the place where it all began for Jesus, a town called Nazareth. This is Jesus' hometown. It's where he grew up. The place where people knew him and the place you think he'd be loved and embraced. We see in verse 16 that it was the Sabbath, the Jewish day of worship. And where do we find Jesus? We find him in the synagogue, gathered with the Jewish people for the corporate worship of Yahweh. Now, why does Luke give us this detail? You know, as a a preacher, you always look at the text and you're always asking questions of the text. 
Why does Luke give us this detail? You know, you might be tempted in just a read-through of the text. You might get caught up in the high points and miss details like this. And you just think, well, Luke's just explaining that's what Jesus did on the Sabbath. But if you did this, you'd be missing a very important piece to understanding Jesus. We all know that Jesus was a radical figure. We know that he handmade a whip and premeditated flipping tables in the temple. We know that he spoke out against religious figures. We know that he loved and was near the marginalized of society. He wasn't part of the establishment. We know those things. But some take this too far. Jesus was not a religiously insensitive rebel. He wasn't. He was a devoutly religious Jew who attended synagogue regularly. That's who Jesus was. Why does Luke make this point? Because there have been some who try to redefine Jesus based on some singular perspective of his ministry. Take, for instance, the heretic Marcion. In less than 100 years from the time Luke is writing this, a man named Marcion will begin convincing people that the love and mercy of Jesus is incompatible with the righteousness and justice that characterizes the God of the Old Testament. Therefore, Marcion would have people believe that Jesus wasn't the Jewish Messiah. Marcion did believe that Jesus was the true God sent to save people, but he essentially removed him from any relationship to the God revealed in the Old Testament. How do you think Jesus would feel about this? That would not be okay. So this is one example of many errors that can happen when we focus too heavily on a singular perspective or aspect of Jesus' ministry to the exclusion of all the others. Just a chapter ago, Luke tells us that Jesus had been around the temple since he was a child. His parents discipled him in the scriptures. He wasn't new to Judaism. In fact, he was a teacher of it. He taught the law, the prophets, and wisdom literature like any other Jewish teacher of his day. Well, almost like any other teacher of his day. The Jews were waiting for their Messiah, or in Hebrew, their Mashiach. This Hebrew word actually means anointed one. They were waiting on God's anointed one to come and liberate them. To come and save them from their plight in this world. For the current generation of Jews, many thought this was to remove the cruel and oppressive hand of Rome. They thought the anointed one, the Savior, would ride in on a white horse and slay all the Roman legions. They thought he would be a political Savior. One that valued their affairs over their enemies. Many Jews thought that the coming of Messiah would be much like the Maccabean revolt that happened less than 200 years prior to this moment, to Jesus' birth. This was where a Jewish priest stood up to the secularization that he saw all around him. He had had enough. 
He assembled a holy army and he began fighting battles against the oppressors. This priest, his sons, and the army that followed them had great success. They reclaimed their Jewish temple in Jerusalem and reinstituted many of their traditions back into society. However, this reform that the Maccabean revolt brought wouldn't last a generation. Israel needed a savior whose reforms would last more than a generation. Israel needed a Mashiach who would make all things new and whose kingdom would stand forever. And so, on this ordinary day in Nazareth, Jesus the son of Joseph, the carpenter, stood up. He stood up to read from the prophet Isaiah. He read the 61st chapter. Isaiah 61 was understood by Jews to be about the dawning of a new eschatological age, which simply means a new end time. A time that would mark God's new age of salvation. This passage in Isaiah was also deeply connected to the Jewish Jubilee, a once every 50-year time in Israel where Hebrew slaves and prisoners would be set free. Everybody was free. Those who had had to sell themselves and their families into slavery were now all free. All debts would be forgiven across the land, and the mercies of Yahweh would be on display in special fashion. It was a beautiful thing. So this chapter in Isaiah was exciting for the Jews. Just like Revelation 7 and the message that Carlton preached at the beginning of this series is exciting for us to think about the day when we'll all be gathered around the throne and there will be no more tears. All the people we just prayed for will be in glorified bodies. There will be no sickness, nothing taken away. All will be restored. When we think about that moment, that gets us excited. And so when they, the Jews, would hear Isaiah 61, it's that kind of excitement. It's that kind of emotion being stirred up in them. If you use your imagination, you can probably just think, as Jesus is reading Isaiah 61, there is some sweet saints sitting there, (laughs) maybe even lifting their hands, saying, oh, the glorious day. Oh, come quickly, Mashiach, come quickly. It evoked this kind of emotion for the Jewish people. So Jesus reads Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now this was Jewish custom. You stood to read God's word, and you sat when you went to interpret it. So at this point in the service, all eyes are fixed on Jesus. Everyone is waiting with anticipation to hear the teacher's sermon on this beautiful, emotional passage. And he began by saying to them, today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. That's what that was. As you just imagine in that moment, people, I, I, I doze off for a second. Did he, did he just say it's fulfilled to, today? Fulfilled. Hey, did, did he just say it's fulfilled today? This t- fulfilled? You got to think like, when someone stands up and says something like that, immediately there's just all kinds of crazy thoughts. And what, what is he talking about? Did I, did I miss something? Does he have the wrong passage? What's going on? Like you just got to imagine like being at church on this particular Sunday. This is why you shouldn't skip Sundays. This would be a bad one to miss. Seriously, this is absolutely incredible. Now what's going to ensue in this story is people are going to go bonkers. They're going to begin rustling and talking. Uh, there's going to be lots of unbelief. People are going to begin whispering about whose son is he? Where? He's from here, isn't he? What is he talking about? And ultimately, the church service is going to end with people literally wanting to throw Jesus off of a cliff. That's how that church service ended that day. But what I want to focus on this morning is this Isaiah passage that Jesus says he fulfills. It's in this section where we clearly see our Savior's message and his mission. So we'll begin with mission. When we begin digging into Isaiah 61, we can clearly see that the Savior's mission, summed up, is to free the captives and restore to them what was taken. That's his mission. Now the word captives here refer to a prisoner of war. When someone was taken as a prisoner of war, they were stripped of everything. Their identity, their wealth, their spouse, their children if they had them, even their physical health as they weren't promised food or even a decent living arrangement. Their captor may even choose to abuse them by making them lame or blinding them. These captives, or prisoners of war, lost everything and became the property of their captors. And the Jewish people knew plenty about being in captivity. Their history is well documented in the book of Exodus where they were enslaved in Egypt. Just a little more than 500 years prior to this moment, They were in captivity in Babylon. And now they're under Rome's thumb. So when Isaiah 61 talks about freedom for the captives and freedom to those who are oppressed, the Jews long for this freedom. But for us who live in free America, this kind of captivity is hard to fathom. I don't think anyone sitting here today has ever had the experience of someone knocking on your door coming in and taking your children and spouse. Wouldn't happen. I hear that's why you towed a gun. So, because this is not our case, because this is not the the, the day we live in, the context we live in, it's sometimes hard for us to get our minds wrapped around this kind of captivity. But, 
we can at times feel like prisoners of war. Right? Some of you that are married are shaking your head. Seriously, whether it be mental captivity or emotional captivity, sometimes we can be free as a bird but feel trapped. This is why some of the most wealthy, powerful, freest people on the planet are some of the most miserable people on the planet because they're not really free. And when it comes to having things taken from us, this is something we can all understand as well. As you heard me pray just a minute ago, some of you have lost your good health. It's been taken from you. Not by anything you necessarily did. Some of you have had your wealth taken from you through companies closing or markets shifting. Some of you have had your children taken from you, whether they be born or unborn. Casey was just sharing with me one of the painful and tragic stories that came out of the uh, tornado catastrophes this past few weeks. Um, It was a family, it was about a family who uh, was so desperate to try to save their baby that they strapped the child in a car seat. Did you hear about this? Just awful. Strapped the child in a car seat child was slung away from the home, and the car seat helped a ton, but the baby still passed away. And so we, we know stories like this. We're not ignorant to loss, suffering, and pain. And in these ways, we do know a little bit about captivity. Jesus will spend much of his ministry teaching people about the kind of captivity that imprisons all humanity. This is the captivity of sin. Jesus says in John 8 that he who, is a, he who sins is a slave to sin. That person's not free. They are Satan's captive. And he has stripped and continues to strip that person of their dignity, identity, and purpose. By sowing lies into their head and heart. You know these people. Many of you were these people. These people are workaholics. And they're drug addicts. These people cheat on their taxes. And they steal people's wallets. These people slander others. And they sleep with others for money. These people are self-righteous and they're licentious. And according to Jesus, they are being held as captives. They're prisoners of war. But our Savior's mission is to liberate them, to set them free, and to restore to them their identity, purpose, and dignity. This is the mission of Jesus. He came to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's some more of Isaiah 61. That's Jesus' mission. And one of the most beautiful things about this passage and this church service in Nazareth is our Savior sits and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Now we might think to ourselves, well, hold up. It will be fulfilled once he's went and completed his mission, right? Wrong. Wrong. There was never a doubt in eternity past about our Savior completing his mission. Never. He may be sitting and saying today this scripture is fulfilled, but our Savior has always been and always will be standing in authority, flexing his strong arm over any foe that steps to him. His victory over the one who has held us in captivity was assured the very day in the garden when we first became captives and God declared to that wicked beast, you'll bruise the Savior's heel, but he will crush your head. It was finished then. And this church is his message. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me (laughs) because he has anointed me. That's his message. When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees in John 8 and he's showing them how they are prisoners and they're not free, they invoke the great patriarch Abraham and say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. I am. You see, Jesus is the one who Abraham's faith was in. Our Savior wasn't created He didn't come into existence. He has always been. He was the one who called Abraham out of Ur. He was the rock who gave the thirsty Israelites water in the desert. He was the manna that fed them. He was the Passover lamb that protected the Hebrews from the angel of death. He was Israel's true prophet, true priest, true king. This would be Jesus' message. I am. Very simple. I am. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. You see, when we were captives to sin and Satan, there was a ransom price. And this ransom price was more than we could ever afford. The price was our life. All that we had. Death would be the cost for our freedom. But you see, upon death, we go bankrupt, right? So the author of life, the one who is life, steps down from heaven, gives himself over to death in our place. Jesus' heroic act as our Savior comes through spreading his arms wide on a cross and giving up his spirit and dying. Now I want you to think about something. If you 
in this room as an individual stood neath a hundred million dollar debt. Hundred million dollar debt. I don't think there's a person in this room that could pay that debt. It would bankrupt you. You would have nothing. And what if your debtor was bent on getting his money, taking your spouse and your children, even your socks off your feet? He's coming after everything. It would bankrupt all of us. We would have no hope. But what happens to your circumstance when Elon Musk walks into the room and calls you friend? Well, this changes the game. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. Got about $300 billion. To him, $100 million? It's nothing. And this to the nth degree is how Jesus pays our death payment. Jesus is life. And so upon giving his life for us, when he rises in three days, this is what he says, I'm rich in life. It's no more. And it doesn't even dent his account because he is life. And he calls you friend. He calls me friend. As our Savior, he redeems us. And he says, you have no more payment. I've paid it. I've given everything. You go free. You don't just have the life that you once had. I'm giving you better life. This is what's shown in his resurrection. When we come to Jesus, we're broke. We have nothing. But when we believe in Jesus, we become rich beyond all measure. This is another reason the prosperity gospel is so silly. Some say that the prosperity gospel promises too much. Are you kidding me? It doesn't promise near enough. Why would a good father give his children mere trinkets that moth and rust will destroy? Oh no, <laughs> that's not our God. Our God gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, never fading. Riches that you can't imagine. Life that you can't fathom. That's what our Father gives us. And here's what the good news is. Is that it's yours right now, believer. Like it's yours. You may think, yeah, one day I'll, I'll get that inheritance my dad always told me about. No. It's been charged to your account already. Believe. <laughs> Believe. If you knew how rich you were, I promise you every one of us would live completely different than we currently do on this earth. 
if we really believed how rich we were. How do I know this? Let's look at Jesus. Though he was rich, he became poor so that you, in his poverty, might become rich. (laughs) You see, when we don't understand rightly our Savior, his mission, and his message, we live in a way in this world that's very confusing. It's sometimes like a half-hearted trying to be faithful without trying to be too radical type of thing. And honestly, we should just call it what it is. Little faith. When you have a Savior as glorious and as awesome as Jesus, you will live free as a bird. You will live with unshakable confidence that's not based on your circumstances, but based on the unchangeable promises of your Savior. I want to end today with my favorite passage in the Bible. This is the passage that God used like a lightning rod in my life to remind me that he has set me free. Free to live radically for his glory here on earth. Free to take risks and freedom from fear about what might happen. Man. Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Jesus says, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's not ignorant. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. (laughs) You see, when Jesus sets you free, he also brings you into his family. (laughs) He's not just like Superman, who swoops in, saves the day, gives you a thumbs up, and then leaves. He comes in and saves the day, calls you out, and says, you're mine. You belong to me. And because you belong to me, you're rich beyond all measure. You're an heir, a co-heir with Christ. (laughs) You know, there are going to be some of us, I think, on that day when we stand before God and and, and we're we're seen as a co-heir. We're a co-heir with Christ. And there's going to be some of us who go, no, 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 no. And we're going to be told to shut our mouth. The Father has spoken. You're a co-heir with Jesus. Not because you deserve it. Not because you thought that you, be quiet. 
the Savior has redeemed you and made you his own, lifted you up. This is the good news of Christmas. That we have a Savior that would condescend and do this for us, those who are living in captivity. This is such good news. His mission was to set the captives free and restore to them all that was lost. His message is believe in him and you will be saved. I'm praying that God uses this word today to encourage your heart, but also to inspire you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Your faith's not going to get better by trying harder or getting more disciplined. Your faith's going to get stronger as you fix your eyes on the one who gives you faith. He's beautiful. He's awesome. Get lost in him. May we all be transformed into the image of our Savior to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for saving us. This is such good news. So good, God, that we can rejoice as your people. And we can be freed up to use everything that we have in this world, our gifts, our talents, our treasure, all for the glory and the expansion of your name so that those who are still captors may be set free like we are. That they may know what it's like to be brought into the family. God, I pray that we would give our lives to this For if we don't, Lord, we are wasting them. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Aaron's going to come now and and share some details uh, with us. We've got a little bit of of business to do. Um, Before before Aaron goes, let me just say this to you. If, uh, if, you know, we don't do a, a formal invitation all the time here at Grace Fellowship. We do sometimes. But if, if God is stirring your heart and, and you, you feel like, man, I, he's awakened my soul today. I want to give my life to him. Please stop one of us, myself or Aaron or one of the pastors or anybody in this room. Just share that with somebody and let them know so that we can pray with you and walk with you. That's why we're here as a people. We've all come to faith in Jesus, and now we're working out our faith together. So, uh, Aaron, will you share with us about the budget? Um, and I hope this is not a shift to a downer to do a little business, but as you know, we presented to you our budget for next year, for 2022. Two weeks ago, you've had two weeks to look over it and make comments, ask questions, and so today we need to vote on that to approve it for next year so that we can go forward with it. So I would ask, and by the way, let me just say this, I really, really appreciate those of you who had comments or questions or clarifications about it. That really means a lot that you care enough to take time to say something to us. And again, I really appreciate the deacons' hard work. You know, the deacons are really like your federal representatives in all this. And we want this to be your budget, not the deacons' budget, not the elders' budget, but your budget. So I think that's been accomplished because of their 
being in so, so much in tune to what you think and feel. So, having been presented the budget two weeks ago, I would ask all those who are members of Grace Fellowship that vote to approve and agree with this budget personally that you would raise your hand. Okay. Now, I would ask the same. Those who don't approve the budget and disagree, would you raise your hand? Well, except for one jokester back there. That seems to be unanimous. <laughs> um, all right, now, to move back to a little better thing, I have an announcement to make. Y'all have already exceeded the budget for 2022 this year. As of today, we are over 20% ahead of the budget for this year. In fact, yeah. and, and let me just say this, it is due to year-end giving, but it's also due, we were ahead of the budget before we got to December. And God has just blessed so through you that we wanted to go ahead and do something this week and then tell you about it today. And that is, we secretly, <laughs> it was, it was secret, but I'm sure, you, I'm sure you agree with it. We paid off our note this week. So, thanks be to God through you, we are out of debt. And, um, Wonderful. And, and, you know, just to shift back to the mission and the message of the man. Mm. Um, I'm not the man. I know. <laughs> I want to be clear there. I, I, I can't help.